we're spending the fall looking at some of the questions that Jesus used in his ministry. And sometimes he used them when he was speaking or teaching. He was uh, using questions to kind of challenge a common way of thinking, getting somebody to think more deeply about a certain issue. Um, But sometimes he uses questions like in the passage that we're about to read uh, to help people understand who he is. Now, as I'll say this, I've already said this before, I'll just say this many, many times during the fall. Every time Jesus asks a question, he is giving us an insight into who he is, the concerns of his heart, his desires for his people and his desires for the world. And uh, you may have noticed we're a little ambitious this morning. We're not taking on one question, but we're taking on two, actually, two questions for us this morning, a double helping, which this was a great Sunday to choose to do two questions when the AC decides to go out. Well, the reason we're doing that is because when we read this text, it's not just one story, but two. Some people call what we're about to read an example of a Markin written by Mark, a Markin sandwich where he enfolds one story into another. Now you see this and a lot of TV shows do this, a lot of movies do this. They have like parallel stories running right next to each other and they're kind of, it's it's a literary device or a narrative device where it's seeking to draw parallels between two stories to highlight a certain point or by contrast. And so, uh, and so that's what we're looking at this morning are two stories. We're going to do a lot of like parallel work uh, in these texts as we look at them. So as I read it, just, uh, just, just think about how each of these stories uh, kind of throw sparks off each other as I go through it. Let's hear the word of the Lord. This is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be with us. Uh, I pray as we sit under the goodness, the good authority of your word, that you would help us to hear well from it, uh, and that you would help me to love these friends, uh, to be uh, uh, captured by gospel love myself, and to serve uh, you and during this time. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we have? We have two stories, two miracles, two people, asking uh, two people in a state of desperation. And of course, we have two different questions from Jesus. One is directed to a a woman who is suffering badly, and the other is directed at a crowd. And uh, I don't know if you... uh, I don't know if you felt this way when I just read through it, but the more I looked at the story, the more it felt noisy to me. Did you catch that? Like he's just surround, if he steps off the shore and he's surrounded by a crowd uh, and it's just people talking and it seems like Jesus is uh, at least trying to have conversations with people even as short as it is while, there's just, while they're just surrounded by noise. Uh, but what's the thing between both of these stories that binds them together? What's the thing? What's the thing that Jesus seems to be so concerned about when he speaks in these stories. Uh, When he speaks to the woman who was healed, he says, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Faith is his concern. And when he speaks to Jairus, after Jairus hears probably the worst news a parent can ever receive, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Now, you know, and I know, that when you are with somebody who is enduring uh, a tragedy of the magnitude of something like this, there are a lot of things you don't say. And uh, this feels like one of those things, right? In fact, there's a long list of things that you do not say. And there's a very short list of things that you do say, right? And when you look at what Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. This feels like one of those things that belong on the list of things that you do not say, right? And so I think you can go one of two ways when you look at this passage and look at what Jesus said. Either he is the least emotionally aware person in history, which is a tough case to make, or he is calling our attention to something important about the role of faith in our lives, especially as we endure difficult circumstances, But here's the thing about faith. I was having this conversation with somebody this morning 
uh, faith is an incredibly hard thing for us to talk about, especially when we talk about our own faith. Uh, when we talk about faith in concept, even that is hard to talk about because often it feels kind of elusive to us or, uh, or like it's changing shape or it comes and it goes on, on its own like a roller coaster up and down. Faith can be this hard thing to really describe. And, uh, and having conversations of faith where we're seeking to kind of explain our, our own faith or the state of our own faith just feels very vulnerable. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's just a very hard thing to talk about. But when Jesus brings up faith, when Jesus talks to this woman and talks with this man, he seems to be talking about something concrete and real, something objectively true that he sees in each one of them, something that applies and matters in the everyday situations we find ourselves in. And so what I want to do this morning, and I'm I'm just going to try and simplify as I go, but uh, is draw attention to the parallels that run between both of these stories, both in the demonstrations of faith that we see in both of these characters, in this this woman and in this man, and how Jesus responds to both of them. There There are remarkable consistencies between both of these stories and the way that goes. So that's, those are the points. It's going to be demonstrations of faith uh, and then responses to faith. First, demonstrations to faith. There are two things I want you to see that, that, that you see both in, the, in this woman and in this man. You see faith revealed from a place of need, revealed in need, and you see it expressed in hope. Okay, Revealed in need, expressed in hope. Uh, first, place is revealed in a place of deep need. Let's start with Jairus. So Jairus, uh, sorry, Jesus is coming to the shore. And from the moment he steps off the boat, he's surrounded by a crowd of people. Some of you remember, I think it was it two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we preached on Jesus calming the storm. Uh, that, that was a story, that was, that was the story when Jesus had just previously left the same spot on the shore. So he left this place just a few days ago. And uh, since he left, he's calmed uh, uh, the storm on the sea and he's cast demons out of a, out of a person, the demoniac Domitian. And so word is, getting, word is getting around about this guy, Jesus, who is doing uh, some incredible things that nobody else can do. And so when he is coming back to town, a mob shows up because they, 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 they're interested in seeing what Jesus is going to do next. And so everybody's trying to get close right? Everybody's trying to get a view. And then this prominent, well-known, dignified man plows through the crowd and throws himself at Jesus's feet. Do you see the difference between Jairus's behavior and everybody else's? Some people are there for the spectacle, right? But Jairus is coming to him from a place of great need. Even before he says a word, everything in his behavior demonstrates that he is a man in need, and he is physically casting himself upon Jesus for mercy. Now, that's what the crowd says. Uh, Sorry, that's what the crowd sees. But what they don't see is another person among them who's also in great need. She's been suffering for a long time. The text says she's been suffering for 12 years. And Mark is careful to note that she is suffering in a lot of ways beyond 
just uh, beyond her physical suffering, okay? Uh, she's been suffering from this flow of blood. Most people think that the, there's something wrong with her reproductive system. There's just some, this issue of blood that continues. The other source of her suffering was all the ways that she had gone about seeking to find a cure. Verse 26 tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had. And it also adds that her condition was only getting worse. I mean, can you just imagine how terrible this would be? We actually know some of the, uh, some of the avenues that she would have gone uh, to look for help to cure this illness or disease, whatever it is that she was suffering with. Uh, the Talmud, which is a, a Jewish historical, it's, a, it's a, a, a primary source of Jewish historical theology and law, gives you no less than 11 potential solutions that she could have, uh, that she could have pursued to try and find her own healing. And they're, they're all some kind of mixture of like, they, they can border on superstition. Um, they have like recipes for potions. Um, one example that I found is that uh, you, would take, you would take what they call gum. It could be rubber gum, the size of a silver coin, and you would bruise it together with uh, crocus and what was it? Crocus and alum. And then mix it in wine and drink it. Like that's an example of one of the pathways she would have chosen. And I don't give that to you to, to like make fun of the common wisdom or anything like that. I'm just trying to call your attention to this path of repeated hopelessness that this woman was on for such a long time. And now here she is when we find her, she's broke and she's only getting worse. Now look, you could ask, the, you could ask this question at this point. Charles, I see how they're both desperate. They're both coming to Jesus uh, with a great need. But how is this an act of faith and not just another act of desperation? Like they, like they, that is a good question to ask of the text. But when you look, you actually see acts of faith or expressions of faith in the things that they say. Look at verse 23 again. My little daughter, this is Jairus. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay her hands on her so that she may be made well. There's this kind of conviction of the heart in Jairus' words that say, if he will, then he, then, then he could heal her. The same thing is in verse 28. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So their hope is rooted in their conviction that Jesus is capable, if only he will. If only I could get close enough to touch him. You also see their hope in what they do. Because both of them were uh, taking some sizable risk in doing, in doing what they did. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a synagogue is, uh, is where people worshipped if you didn't live in Jerusalem. So the temple worship was in Jerusalem. Most people didn't live in the capital city. They're kind of spread out all through the countryside. You had towns, and they, many of these towns had synagogues. And that was where you would go, uh, other than the pilgrimage that you would take to the temple. That was where you went for your, like, weekly, regular uh, place of worship with, uh, with God's people. And each of these synagogues had rulers of the synagogues. Many of them were Pharisees. Uh, some of them were teachers of the law. Some of them admi- administrated the activities of the temple. But all, if you were a ruler of the, 
synagogue, it meant that you existed in the community with some sense of prominence or authority or dignity or respect. That was the kind of person that this is. And so when Jairus runs and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, what you see is actually somebody who's breaking ranks with the religious authority. There will be consequences for that, religious or socially, when he did that. And for as much risk as he took, uh, the, the risks this woman took to, to come to Jesus were even greater. Because one of the consequences of her condition was that, according to Jewish law, she was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. If you're interested in reading more about the details of that, just turn to Leviticus chapter 15. It'll kind of lay that out for you. But this was a big deal in the community of Jewish people. Um, if you were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, uh, if you had a skin disease, uh, if, you had, if you had recently touched a dead body, um, or if you had an issue of blood or anything like this, uh, then you had to isolate yourself from the rest of the people. Anybody who touched you also then became unclean as well. And so this was like this isol. This would have been just this terrible isolating condition that she was in. And one of the things that tells us is that if she is in a crowd of people trying to make her way to the center of the crowd of people, she alone is she's taking a, a, a tremendous risk just being there. And so one of the things I want you to see when you look at this passage is that, is that for as different as these two people are, and, as for, and for as different as their circumstances are, they're really the same. When they come to Jesus, it's the same. You got one person who's an insider, who's prominent, probably wealthy, well-respected, taking a risk to go before Jesus, trusting him for his mercy. And then you have somebody else who's an outsider, who's lonely, who's broke, who's avoided by people, coming bef- taking a risk and coming before Jesus. Two different scenarios, one expression of faith. That's what you see in this passage. And yet, in both instances, they're governed by the same hope that Jesus might save them and, and here, so here's, what I, here's one of the things I want you to see is I think there's a tremendous encouragement behind this passage because one of the things that it's telling us is that for as radical as their acts of faith were, it's also striking how little they actually understood about Jesus. Like they just knew enough. You know what, like in a lot of ways this, this woman comes to Jesus and it, it might have felt to her in a lot of ways, very similar to, to some of the other desperate acts that she, that she uh, undertook in order to find healing. Except for one difference, she's coming before Jesus. And what does Jairus know? Jairus knows these stories about who Jesus is and, and things that he had done, but they actually know very, very little about Jesus himself. And yet, according to Jesus, when he looks at them, what does he see? He sees real, genuine Real, genuine faith. Listen, if, if faith is hard to talk about, and I get it, uh, one of the reasons it's hard to talk about is because we're often talking about the strength of our faith rather than the object of our faith. Like if I asked you, pastors, pastors ask awkward questions, y'all. You just have to, 
we do that. Um, I mean, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, maybe this is why people avoid pastors. I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, if I ask you, how, how is your faith? Which is a very vulnerable question to ask. Most often, the way we would answer it are the things that like we're doing to cultivate our faith. This is how often I've been in the Bible. This is how often I pray. This is like... Instead of actually talking about our faith, we're talking about ways we nurture the strength of our faith, right? While completely missing that the most important thing that this story is highlighting is the object of our faith, what our faith is aimed at. And what is faith? If not trusting something else for something that we couldn't do for ourselves, right? And this is telling us that no matter how we feel about our faith or how insecure we might be or how guilty we might feel about the strength of our faith, there's some days where your faith might make you feel like Superman or Superwoman, right? Like you you could attack anything. And there are some days where I feel like I don't know where it is if I find it. This story is giving you an encouragement. And it's telling you you can live with real courage. That it doesn't always take this robust, perfectly informed, super knowledgeable faith in order to also possess a faith that is pleasing to God, that Jesus recognizes as faith. Now, we should be informing our faith, nurturing it, and nourishing it. But don't miss. It's the object of our faith that's most important. And it's so important, it's so important because Mark is not just telling us about the importance of faith for us. He's telling us about how Jesus responds to faith with such willing tenderness. I mean, the, the, the ways Jesus responds to Jairus and to this woman is just beautiful. It's just beautiful. The first thing he does is he dignifies. Now, just try, if you haven't already, try to put yourself in the shoes of this woman. Anonymity is your friend, right? You're trying to hide. You don't want to be noticed. Um, You've just experienced a sensation of healing that you've been looking for for years. You are whole for the first time in a long time. And now, just when you think you might be able to get away, the man who healed you is is calling you out. Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine that? Who touched my garments? And the disciples are incredulous when he uh, when when he's asking that question because everybody's touched his garments. Like the crowd is thronging about him. What do you mean? Who touched my garments? There are two people in the crowd that know why Jesus is asking that question. One who has just been made strong, and another who has just been weakened, so that she could be made strong. You see what's going on in this passage? And what he doesn't want for her, and he's looking to teach her and Jairus, anybody else who's there, and you and me, one of the things that he wants for her is to know that this is not a magic trick. That you actually, that that you actually, what does he say? He calls her daughter. Before he says anything else. What does the text say? The text says, she like, owned up. She was confessing what happened and told the whole truth, right? What does that sound like? It sounds like somebody who's making a confession. 
I mean, you see some of her courage in just her coming forward and speaking to him. She threw himself at his feet too, right? And Jesus is lifting her head and looking her in the eye, and he calls her daughter. He treats her with such dignity, and he is telling her that you are a member of the family of God. You are no less than that. And this claim of dignity given to her only gets more powerful when you think about Jairus, this powerful man who's standing there looking at his watch. Could you imagine the agony he might be experiencing? There's a ticking clock. His daughter's dying. Jesus has stopped the movement of a whole crowd to talk to this woman. And one of the things Jesus is saying to her I mean, just think about when the last time was she might have heard words of meaning and warmth and love like this. He is saying to her, you are as important to me as he is. He is dignifying her because he loves her. It's a profound expression of love and of dignity. You see, Jesus doesn't just show respect. He doesn't just give dignity. He assigns a relationship. That, that's, that's what Jesus does. He, it is a covenantal relationship. One where you become bound to him. And you also see it here when he raises this little girl from the dead. Look, this is a beautiful picture. This is just an incredibly beautiful picture of what he does. When he goes to the house, he's met by another crowd of uh, these would be professional mourners, okay? These would be, they would be wailing and crying outside the house, as was the custom. Their job, listen, their job was to make a commotion and to weep, okay? So I've always thought it was really weird that Jesus, I've, for years I've wrestled with this question, like why did Jesus say this? Why are you making a commotion and weeping when they, like there's an obvious answer to that question, You know, it almost seems like maybe he's being dismissive or maybe he's being confrontational to these people or or at least maybe he's being a little bit flippant. What's going on here? Well, one of the things he's doing is he is is putting everybody out of the house. Notice how there are only a few people in the house with him, Jairus and his wife, and then these three disciples that he took along with him. He's not allowing what... He is not, again, this is very similar to that first story. He's not allowing what he's about to do to become a spectacle. And I needed another pastor to help me understand this. But when Jesus says, she is not dead, but is only sleeping, which would have just sounded crazy to anybody there, he is saying, she's sleeping because I'm here. She's sleeping because I'm here. When Jesus is here, death is not death. Death is not final. And and, and you see this in New Testament authors. The disciples will write this. Luke in Acts, when he's telling the story of Stephen, when he gets martyred, what does he say? He says he fell asleep. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he starts talking about death, he changes the word for it and calls it sleep. And Jesus is saying that he has come to undo 
the greatest enemy you and I face. He's come to undo death. And when he does it, the picture of how he undoes death for this, this, uh, for this little girl is just so beautiful. The first is that he talks to her like he talks to her as if she was his daughter. Talitha Kumi, little girl, rise up. He's talking to her like, like it's his daughter and she's just, he's just waking her up from, from bed. Like it's time to get up. And the other thing that, uh, that he does is he takes her by the hand. And remember what I was saying about if you touch somebody who was ceremonially unclean, if you handled the dead body, what happens? You literally become ceremonially unclean. And Jairus would have been shocked by this when he took her hand. Jairus' wife, for sure. The apostles probably were. But if you're looking, if you're reading Mark from the beginning, which we're not doing, you would have seen that Jesus did this actually in Mark chapter 1 when he heals a leper. He, t- he reaches out and touches the leper. What's he saying? He's saying, I become unclean so that you can become clean. Jesus is laying out these little portraits or previews of what he came to do. He is showing a picture. He is showing us a picture of what he will endure in order to, in order to heal the people that he loves. And so from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is giving us pictures of the atoning sacrifice. A woman confesses to him and he dignifies her. All, she, all they say is, I, I'm in too deep. I, I don't know what, I, I, there's nothing I can, uh, this is too much for me. I can't help myself and I need you. And now Jesus becomes unclean so that the little girl can be made clean. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is giving us a, a preview of the atoning sacrifice that he offers, but then he, but then he offers us another. Did you notice, for as noisy as this story is, it suddenly gets quiet? Did you see that? It's like this picture of faith working itself out in the chaos of the world, but it ends in silence and peace and life-giving presence of Jesus. See, he's also showing us a picture of where faith leads us. Can you, can you see this story? Can you hear Jesus' words falling on this little girl's ears? And can you see her eyes flutter and open wide? What is the first, what is the first thing she sees? The face of Jesus. And then she sees her mom and dad. And then she sees three strange dudes who have just become her brothers. It's this picture of where faith leads is this place of perfect peace. The promises that Jesus offers to those who trust him with the weight of their lives. It may start small, small like a mustard seed, It may feel up and down, but it holds strong, and it ends in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, what a thing we can celebrate. What a Savior you sent to be with us. Lord Jesus, what a thing you did for us. Would you sustain us? 
and faith and deepen our faith in your mercy. Hold us in faith. Holy Spirit, speak to us in faith. Would you do these things? For my friends and for me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.